drop and give me 25. I'm the gunny. It's it's time for the gunny. The quarter deck. Lights, lights, lights. Get online right now. You got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello, my bunch of knuckle-dragging, beer-drinking, hard-charging devil dogs. You're listening to The Quarter Deck. I am your host, Miguel, The Gunny Signs. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to another episode here of The Quarter Deck. I am your host, Miguel the Gunny Signs, and this week on The Quarter Deck, we're going to go ahead and continue with our reading of our book with the 1st Marine Division in 2003, No Greater Friend, No Worst Enemy. If you guys can remember, last week we all started talking about a little bit more about the planning, the personnel, and all the things that the division is actually doing to make sure that the division is going to be prepared to head across the border from Kuwait into Iraq. And this week, we're going to focus a little bit more about talking about personal issues. Where are they going to put these individuals? What units are they actually going to go into? And what are their purpose? And what are they exactly going to do in all these different billets that they're going to be actually holding and getting ready to actually complete? This week, we're also going to go ahead and start talking a little bit more uh, regarding our Marines that we keep talking about and World War II to ensure that we understand their story. We want to make sure that we know exactly the things that they did and what happened with them to ensure that we know their story. Because it's important for us to actually know the story of all these individuals. Their stories are legendary. To us, it's history. And they are pretty much the same reason why I became a United States Marine, and this week we're going to focus on the story of Major General James Lewis Day of the United States Marine Corps. He is going to be our main focus, and we're going to ensure that we understand his story regarding how he earned that Congressional Medal of Honor. The Quarter Deck. So like I mentioned, this week we are starting our actual broadcasting of our podcast in a video form as well on our Facebook page, The Quarter Deck with Gunny Signs. And this week we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, a lot of things that have been going on regarding not only the Marine Corps, but last week we talked a lot about stories and things that Marines have shared in the past because to us it's important that we understand and we remember our past and our history and the things that we've done in the Marine Corps. Last week, I mentioned that I was sitting on the phone and I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone for like almost an hour. Good gosh. You know, it's amazing how whenever you start talking to other Marines, that you remember all the little things that happened while you were still on active duty. And I talked a lot about, you know, the, the brothers, the Saldivar brothers that I've met when I was on active duty ceremony, <laughs> active duty ceremony. Hello, I can't even talk anymore, can I? But yes, in the time that when I came into active duty back in September 6th of 1995, whew, that seems like a long time ago, but it's not that long because as far as I can remember, time flies. Time flies so much. And before you know it, your time on active duty service is going to be completed. 
you know, for all of you guys that are still on active duty, whether it's four years, 20 years, whatever, whatever you decide that you want to actually complete in the Marine Corps, you're going to notice that that time is going to fly by. It's going to fly by so fast that before you know it, if you decide to stay in and you decide to stay in your 20 years and retire, it's going to fly by so fast. But with that being said, let me go back a little bit further. Those of you guys know that I spent over 20 years of active duty service in the Marine Corps. I retired gunnery sergeant, artilleryman, my trade. Yes, standby, fire. That was my job and everything else that I did. And I actually retired as a battery gunnery sergeant. But I was able to actually finish my career in Fort Sill, Oklahoma at the artillery training school as the chief instructor down there for their artillery cannoneer school. And also as the battery gunnery sergeant down there at the Marine barracks where I had all the Marines housed to ensure that they were prepared and ready to go for their courses. But let's talk about that time. Let's talk about boot camp. Everybody can remember how they felt when they actually headed into recruit training. For me, what it was like was I was in high school and I believe it was my junior year. The very first time that I actually met Gunnery Sergeant Tracy Freeman, one of the two Marine recruiters that were located down there in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Yes, the little town of Elizabethtown, Kentucky, where I was at because my dad was stationed out there in Ratcliffe, Kentucky at Fort Knox. Yes, where they have all the gold down there in Fort Knox. And I tell you guys, when I first moved down there to Fort Knox and I knew that we were going to be there where they kept all the gold and everything else. I'm like, oh man, we're going to be down there where they have all the gold and we're going to be able to see all those things. But now that I look at it and I see it now compared to the way that I looked at it when I was a teenager, it's not as big as it is as I thought it was going to be. And come to find out that it's not completely full of gold. I thought it was completely full and it's not, it's not full of gold and stuff and everything. It's only like a certain percentage full. And I know that because one of my friend's dads actually worked there at the vault and he was a security guard there. So that's how I figured that stuff out. But let's get back and talk about how uh, I became a United States Marine. So back in that junior year, I ended up meeting Gunnery Sergeant Tracy Freeman. And I was in JRTC in high school. I started that out in junior high when I was still down at Fort Knox High School, but then transferred over to North Harden High School in Radcliffe, Kentucky. So starting that time, I went ahead and started talking to him and learning a little bit more about what the Marine Corps was like and what the opportunities were for me to be down there. Now, I had already actually talked to the Army recruiter prior to talking to Gunnery Sergeant Freeman. Don't ask me why. I had a split second of uh, dumbness in my brain housing group that I decided, you know what, let me go in the Army and be like my dad and join the Army and this and that. I came to my senses, though. I came to my senses, and I was able to enlist into the United States Marine Corps and actually become a Marine. So time flew by and he kept talking to me about my, you know, opportunities and the things that I wanted to do, how challenging I wanted to make my life once I graduated from high school. And this kept going on and on and on to my senior year of high school. Now, since I was in JROTC, that would allow me to actually enlist into the Marine Corps with the incentive to graduate from recruit training as a private first class. So that's what I decided that I wanted to do. But the stipulation that I gave him was the only way that I'm going to enlist in the United States Marine Corps is that you're able to get me down to the MEP station on my birthday on February 28th and enlist that exact same day, 
So that way I can give myself the birthday present of the opportunity to become a United States Marine. And of course, being an outstanding and great recruiter, that is exactly what he did. He got me to the MEP station down there in Louisville, Kentucky, enlisting on my birthday so that I would, I would be able to earn the title of United States Marine. Now, here's the thing. During the time when I enlisted in the Marine Corps my senior year, my father was actually down in Korea. So he was down there in Korea doing an unaccompanied tour. And I never talked to him. I never talked to my mom regarding me wanting to enlist in the service or, any, or anything of that nature. So I just went down there and I actually just enlisted on my own. I went down there, came back to the house, had my paperwork. My mom was like, where'd you go today? I told her I enlisted into the United States Marine Corps. And she was like, oh my God. Next thing I know, she contacted my dad down there in Korea. And man, I got an earful. I got a complete earful because they were mad. I think the, the reason my dad was kind of upset was one, he was under the understanding that I enlisted in the Marine Corps and I was going to drop out of high school and just go off and not finish school. It's not the case. I have to finish high school in order to enlist because if I didn't have a high school diploma, hello, I was not going to be able to actually enlist into the United States Marine Corps. So with that being said, he actually was so mad that he really didn't talk to me about it at all while I was getting ready to go through recruit training. Now, when I actually got ready to leave, my daughter, my oldest daughter, she was actually born that year. So I was still in high school. Yes, I was one of those parents that had my child when I was in high school. But hey, I couldn't ask for anything more. She's a ball of fire. And, you know, it was meant to be. And that's the reason that she ended up being there with me. I enlisted. And then when I graduated high school, my parents were already down in El Paso, Texas in Fort Bliss. So we drove down there myself, my ex-wife. <laughs> yes, I say ex-wife. And our daughter. We drove down to El Paso. And then from El Paso, I caught a Greyhound bus back to Kentucky. And I actually stayed with my recruiter in their house because they kept me there for about a week before I actually got ready to ship out to go through recruit trading. But what I can remember the most is actually, you know, getting on that plane. And we left in a group, about six of us that left from Louisville, heading out there to Paris Island, South Carolina. We got on that plane with all the paperwork and everything. And then we headed off down there to Paris Island. Now, I remember because we left there Louisville and then we headed out on the plane and finally landed there at Paris Island. And there was a liaison Marine that was already there at the actual airport waiting for us to ensure that we were ready to go. Once we got there, he told us, hey, here's a sandwich. And they threw us a sandwich. He said, go ahead and eat because you're not going to be able to eat till later on. And it's going to be a long night. So we sat there at the airport at the USO for what seemed like an eternity. We sat there and just waited and waited because we were waiting on other planes to arrive with other individuals that were going to be in our same company to ensure that we started the training together. I remember that it was already nighttime and you guys can relate to me because it was nighttime when the bus finally showed up to pick us up to actually take us down to Paris Island. And I swear that the bus took forever to get down there to actual Paris Island. Come to find out, I believe that the bus driver was just doing circles and circles and circles 
ensuring that we were kind of disoriented and didn't know exactly where we were going. But it was the middle of the night, about one in the morning, when we finally got to the front gates. And I remember this because it was nighttime, you know, trying to get sleep. We wanted to stay awake, trying to get more sleep. And we pulled into the front gate. And you can hear the bus pulling up and stopping and the, the doors opening. And the sentry from the gate came on board, talked to the bus driver, and then sent us on our way. From there, we headed to receiving. And that is the moment of truth because that is the iconic day that everybody remembers when the bus stops, the drill instructor comes on board the bus and gives you the spiel about, on behalf of Brigadier General, blah, 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 welcome to Paris Island, blah, blah, blah. Get off my bus and get on the yellow footprints, and we all get off the bus, and we step on those iconic yellow footprints. To me, that was pretty much one of the most iconic and memorable days that I remember from actually enlisting in the Marine Corps because getting on those yellow footprints, you know, afforded me the opportunity for a different type of life that I was getting ready to actually head into because I wanted a challenge. I wanted a challenge in my life. And this actually afforded the opportunity for me to ensure that I had that challenge in my life that I wanted to do. I wanted to travel and Hey, what better way to travel than getting on some free cruises that the United States Navy was going to provide for us because yes, they were my ultimate Uber before Uber was even a thing, the Navy for us was our Uber and was able to take us from place to place. But when we got on those yellow footprints and they finally got us lined up and getting ready to go. Now here is the iconic moment. They get us lined up outside the hatches with the big giant eagle globe and anchor on top of the hatch. And they commenced to telling us that through this hatch, you're being afforded the opportunity to actually earn that title of United States Marine. And that's one of the things about the Marine Corps that I truly love. You get the opportunity to earn the title. Nothing, absolutely nothing is going to be given to you because you're just getting the opportunity to complete recruit training and actually earn that title once you graduate from recruit training. And that later on in my career is, you know, what I try to instill into the recruits throughout that time that I was a drill instructor. Because of my drill instructors, their senior drill instructor, Staff Sergeant Villarreal, drill instructor, Staff Sergeant Watkins, drill instructor, Sergeant Boggs, and drill instructor, Sergeant Donnelly. Yes, I will never forget them because they are the ones that started me as a basically trained Marine to ensure that I was going to be successful in the career that I decided that I wanted to complete. And I mean, during that time, when I was getting ready to graduate from recruit training, my plan was to do four years, get the hell out. Because I'm going to tell you guys, you know, recruit training is a culture shock for one. The whole purpose of going there is to break you down completely and rebuild you back up. And that is something that I realized once I became that drill instructor. And I was given the opportunity to take these basic civilians, these young kids that were coming straight from high school, and actually developing them into these basically trained Marines with all the basic skills of a United States Marine. Now, one Marine in particular that I remember from when I was down there in the depot in Fox Company Platoon 2045. 
I was down there and there was one of the recruits and by good God, I can't remember his name, but anyway, he was there. He hardly spoke a lick of English at all whatsoever. So my drone instructor, like, Hey, recruit signs, get over here. You're going to ensure that this recruit knows how to speak better English by the time he graduates here from the depot. So that was the main purpose. So every day during square away time, that was my whole purpose to ensure that we practice a little bit of English to make sure that he became better at actually speaking it before we graduated from recruit training. The whole process for me, those 90 days that I spent there on the depot was life changing for me as an immigrant coming from Mexico to the United States. You know, and I'm not going to say the way that I came into the United States, but it was a process to come here. And then I finally got my residency and I was able to actually, you know, eventually become a United States citizen here in this great nation of the United States. Once I graduated from recruit training, I remember because we graduated early in November because it was Thanksgiving. So they cut off, I, I believe it was like two days or three days that they actually cut off of our training. And, you know, I was like, whoa, they give us a couple of days to make sure that we graduated before it was actually time for Thanksgiving and whatever it is, what it is. We graduated November 21st and then headed home on boot leave. Now here's the thing with boot leave. I can remember that when they took us down there to travel to book our flights back home. Now everybody knows freaking Sato travel is expensive. And especially with the recruits that are graduating from recruit training, you buy the dang tickets like a couple days or a week prior to you actually leaving from recruit training. So it's going to be a hell of expensive, you know? And for me, I remember what I said, my family was back in El Paso. So I had to get a flight from South Carolina to El Paso and from El Paso back to Camp Lejeune to go down there to go through MCT. So it was like about freaking $1,400 for the flights back and forth. And I was like, good God, that was basically all my boot freaking money that I made while I was down there in recruit training. And one of the things was that, you know, a lot of the recruits knew that I had to buy a freaking ticket that was going to be hell of expensive. A lot of them knew that I was going to get ready to go back down to El Paso and I was going to go ahead and get married. So they knew that. And what they did on their own was that they actually started collecting a little bit of money from all the recruits and they gave it to me once I graduated. Now our, our drill instructor, drill instructor staff Sergeant Watkins found out about it and told him, no, you're not going to be able to do that. And one of the things that the squad leaders and the guys told him, but he's like, sir, you told us that we take care of our own. We take care of each other as Marines. Once they said that, and because it was something that was instilled in us that we were a team and we always take care of each other regardless, no matter what. He didn't say anything else about that because that was something that they taught us throughout the whole entire time that we were down there in recruit training. So it's a, it's a whole process. And, you know, all of you that have gone through that process, even those of you listening that are not Marines, that went through basic training in the Army, the Air Force, and Navy, I don't know what the heck they call your guys' training over there, but for us, it's recruit training. We are recruits until the day after we graduate, and now we are basically trained Marines to ensure that, you know, you finally earn that title. Now for me, when I was down there as a drill instructor, recruits were recruits until after they graduated from actual recruit training. And, you know, that was what I believed. And I ensured that these individuals were actually earning that title. After that MCT and all those things, you know, they were 
they were fun because you got to learn a lot of different things. But we'll get into that next week regarding what happened in MCT. So you guys can see it's a learning process. And as a young Marine, that's a lot of headache and a lot of things you do. But you learn and don't do it again. The Quarter Deck is brought to you by Miguel Science Photography. From the beginning of your family to the first birthday and beyond. Whether it's a retirement or a Marine Corps ball, Miguel Science Photography is there to make memories that will last a lifetime. Miguel Science Photography is a certified veteran-owned business. Contact them at miguelsciencephotography.com. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back. Back into time. Last week in our book, with the 1st Marine Division of 2003, No Greater Friend, No Worst Enemy, we were discussing the way that the division was actually going to be able to handle communications as far as when they got into country and how they were going to communicate. And they talked a lot about using actual satellite phones and a lot of different systems that were just implemented to the division month or so prior to the division actually deploying. So heck nobody really knew how to use these systems. They learned how to use them there on the fly. But again, Marines adapt. We overcome and we ensure that we complete the mission regardless, no matter what, to make sure that we understand what we're doing out there once we deploy and head in down there into Iraq. So this week, we're going to look into personnel issues and assigning the troops to actual different tasks. And that's very important. One of the things about the Marine Corps is that Marines of lower rank, always hold billets of a higher ranking individual and in the, all the other services. I've never seen that before because they have to be a certain rank in order to have that certain job. And that's just the way that it is. And I know that's for a fact in the army, you have to be a certain rank in order to hold a position. The Marine Corps is not quite like that. Marines will adapt. They will go ahead and complete their mission, their task. They will do everything they need to do to make sure that the division is prepared and they are ready to go to make sure that they're ready for the fight. So this week, let's go ahead and take a look at this and let's read it. And then we can discuss it a little bit after, you know, because I was there on the ground when all these things were happening. A lot of these things, you know, were, you know, not even in my mind, in my brain housing group. And for all, a lot of you, it was the same exact same way because you really had no idea this stuff was going on. We knew things were going on, the planning, all those things that were going on with the higher ups, the chain of command, the division commander, the regimental commander, all those things were going on, but we really had no clue on how or what was happening to get us ready to head from Kuwait across that border and head into actual Iraq. So let's take a look at this real quick. Once deployment decisions were made, the division faced the task of getting the Fleet Assistance Program, or the FAP, and Force Protection Marines back from the Marine Corps bases to which they were temporarily assigned. On 6 January, at the division's request, the MEF implemented a plan to ensure these Marines were included in the deployment preparations of their combat units right along with the non-FAP personnel. Base commanders at both Camp Pendleton and 29 Palms gave urgent, wholehearted support to this time-sensitive issue. Now, for those of you that don't know what a FAP is, 
when Marines are in units, sometimes there is augment positions that are in other units. One of the main ones, like the ones that we knew there as far as an artillery community was working with the military police. So they would take a number of Marines from each unit throughout the base and augment the military police to ensure they have additional personnel. They would get trained and so forth. So it was like a temporarily billet, a temporary billet that they had and they held to ensure that the base personnel had enough individuals to go ahead and conduct their missions on a daily basis. And now what they're talking about is that they had to come up with a plan to pull them back and actually reassign them back to their units, to their MOS, whatever their specialty was. They had to integrate them back in there. And now they were making that focus now to ensure that it occurred. So this was consistent with their continued strong support of deployment requirements. Key volunteer networks, or the KVN, casualty notifications, and a host of other requirements. The home base and station commanders scrambled to fill the void left by deploying combat units, providing unwavering support throughout the campaign. On 8 January, Headquarters Marine Corps released Marine Corps Bulletin, or McBull, 1900, establishing a stop-loss, stop-move personnel policy. Ah, there we go. Now we're going to talk about what is actually important because this, oh my God, was a headache. And I fell into that category. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute. This stabilized personnel numbers and mitigated many of the problems with planning and tracking for permanent changes of station or PCS. End of active duty service, EAS, and retirements. Although a required to stabilize deployment planning, the policy was not without impact on individual Marines. Many Marines had to cancel new job opportunities, freeze career changes, cancel retirement ceremonies, or extend on unit deployment programs or the UDPs. The fidelity, valor, and patriotism of the Marines as giving the Corps just a little more were noteworthy. The Division CG did not hear a single request mass from the many hundreds of affected Marines who unselfishly put the needs of the Corps and country ahead of their personal wishes. Always leaning into the next fight, Lieutenant Colonel Pulaski and her team began efforts that anticipated early release of the Marines once their talents were no longer required. So, stop loss, stop move. This was something that affected so many Marines. And I know in our unit, there was many, 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 many that were affected by this stop loss, stop move. I was one of those. Not because I was getting ready to get out of the Marine Corps, but because I already had orders to go to the drill field. I already had approved orders to go to the drill field, and that was kanked. No way was it going to happen because now they needed to ensure that all the individuals that were already trained in their unit and they were professionals in their field needed to stay in place just to ensure that the division had every personnel in place that they were going to need to make sure that the mission in Iraq was going to be successful. So this was very important. So it was important for that. And just like they were talking about, they ensured that those individuals that were affected by the stop loss or stop move, especially the stop move, those individuals that were PCSing, 
that were getting out of the service or were about to retire, they were affected tremendously. So as soon as everything was completed in Iraq, now they were actually going to be sent back early because they had to get him out of there because they received incentive pay for being stuck there. So their actual best, 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 oh, I can't talk right now. Their base pay was actually increased a little bit to give them additional income because they were being forced, technically they were being forced to stay in active duty just so they can go ahead and deploy with the units. And I had a lot of friends that were stuck with that. A lot of friends that we'll talk about later on and here in our next couple of episodes, because we're shooting to get them here on the podcast to be a guest. So we can go ahead and just talk about all that stuff and just basically hear the stories that they want to share with, uh, with us about their time on active duty. Now, a lot of the stories that they know, I was there for a lot of these stories. Some of these things are freaking hilarious. And, you know, and we hope to be able to share that with everybody. So everybody has a good understanding and seeing how, you know, how Marines are, because we actually, you know, we have some crazy stories of things that we do. And that goes across the board in all the military and things that they do. But next week, we're going to talk about public affairs. How is the public affairs going to prepare themselves for the mission that, that now they have ahead of themselves? Because now they have to make sure that everybody knows exactly what's going on with the division and know what kind of stories they can actually share and what they can't share. Hero, Hero highlight. This week on our Hero Highlight, we're focusing on Major General James Lewis Day of the United States Marine Corps. And like we talked for the many, many weeks that we talked about this, right now we're still focusing on World War II. But a lot of these individuals, you know, we know about them as far as Marine Corps history, but only the ones that, you know, that we know about Chesty Puller, Dan Daly, all those guys are part of the history, but we want to focus on these Medal of Honor recipients that have earned this Medal of Honor. And Major General James Lewis Day is one of those. So let's take a look at his citations so we can discuss exactly what he did to earn that Congressional Medal of Honor. James Lewis Day was born 5 October 1925 in East St. Louis, Illinois. He enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1943 and participated in combat action during World War II in the Marshall Islands on Guam and on Okinawa, where he earned the Medal of Honor for heroism during the fight for Sugarloaf Hill. He holds a Bachelor's of Science degree in Political Science and a Master's of Business Administration degree. In September of 1952, he completed the basic school at Quantico, Virginia, and was transferred to Korea where he served with Company C, 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, and 1st Reconnaissance Company. 1st Lieutenant Day served as the S-3 Officer Marine Corps Supply Center, Barstow, California, until July of 1954, when he was transferred to Camp Pendleton, California, for duty as the Commanding Officer, Company C, Marine Corps Test Unit 1. He was promoted to captain in December of 1954. Captain Day remained at Camp Pendleton until May of 1956. 
and was then assigned as operations officer of the Recruit Training Command, Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego, California. In September of 1957, he was transferred to Okinawa and served as commanding officer, Fort Point Two Mortar Company, and later served as a battalion operations officer with 9th Marines, 3rd Marine Division. Returning stateside in December of 1958, he was assigned as an instructor, Tactics Group, the Basic School Quantico. He was promoted to major on August 1962 and attended the Amphibious Warfare School, which was also in Quantico. Major Day was transferred to the 4th Marine Corps District in July of 1963 and served as Inspector Instructor, 43rd Rifle Company, Cumberland, Maryland. In April of 1966, Major Day served his first tour in Vietnam as the Commanding Officer, 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, 3rd Marine Division. Returning to Camp Pendleton in June of 1967, he was assigned as the Commanding Officer, 1st Battalion, 28th Marines, 5th Marine Division. He was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel in July of 1967, and in January of 1968, he was reassigned as Battalion Commander, 2nd Infantry Training Regiment, Camp Pendleton. Lieutenant Colonel Day served at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii from 1969 to June of 1971, and attended the Army War College, Carcel Barracks, Pennsylvania from July 1971 to June 1972. After graduation, he served his second tour in Vietnam as Operations Officer, 9th Marine Amphibious Brigade, 3rd Marine Amphibious Force. He was reassigned as commanding officer in Camp Fuji, Japan in March of 1973. He was promoted to colonel in November 1973 and was transferred to Philadelphia for duty as deputy direct director and later director of the 4th Marine Corps District. He remained in the billet until 1 April of 1976 when he was advanced to Brigadier General. He assumed duties as Assistant Depot Commander, Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego, in May of 1976. And on 1 November 1977, he became Commanding General of the Depot, serving in the capacity until 11 March of 1978. On 29 April 1978, he was assigned duty as Deputy Director of Operations J3 NMCC Joint Chiefs of Staff, Washington, D.C. During July of 1979, Brigadier General Day was assigned duty as the Assistant Division Commander, 1st Marine Division, Commanding General, 7th Marine Amphibious Brigade, Fleet Marine Force Pacific, Camp Pendleton. He was promoted to Major General on 1 August of 1980 and assumed duty as the Commanding General, 1st Marine Division, and was ultimately assigned the additional duty as Commanding General 1 MAF on 1 July of 1981. He served in that capacity until August of 1982 when he was assigned duty as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Training, Headquarters United States Marine Corps, Washington, D.C. In July of 1984, he was assigned duty as the Commanding General, Marine Corps Base, Camp S.D. Butler, Deputy Commander, Marine Corps Bases Pacific, 
forward Okinawa Area Coordinator, Okinawa, Japan. He served in this capacity until his retirement on 1 December of 1986. Upon his retirement, he was presented a Distinguished Service Medal for exceptionally meritorious service to the government of the United States for duties while serving in his final duty station. Major General Day was presented the Medal of Honor on 20 January of 1998, over a half a century after the World War II battle on Okinawa, in which he was distinguished himself. He died of a heart attack later that year, on 28 October of 1998, in Cathedral City, California. He was laid to rest in Fort Roscrans National Cemetery, San Diego, California. Major General's Day personal decorations included the Medal of Honor, the Silver Star Medal with two gold stars, in lieu of second and third awards, the Defense Superior Service Legion of Merit with Combat V, the Bronze Star Medal with Combat V, the Navy Combination Medal with Combat V, and Gold Star in lieu of a second award, and six Purple Hearts. The quarterdeck. As we can see, Major Day, what a major badass. <laughs> no pun intended, right? But yeah, you know, all jokes aside, what more can you expect from such an American hero about what he did? And not only that, but once he got that Congressional Medal of Honor in Okinawa, he went on to continue his career up until when he finally retired. I mean, this is the reason. This is the absolute reason that people, that I enlisted into the Marine Corps to uphold that tradition and honor of the things that they did prior to us even coming into active duty service. The 1st Marine Division has now got a plan put into place regarding its personnel issues and ensuring that every single unit had enough individuals in the unit to ensure that they had what they needed as far as the trained personnel Everybody that was the master experts in everything that they conducted in their unit now that they were, were about to leave and they were in country getting ready to head into the country of Iraq. So that's very important. Now, next week, we're going to talk about how the public affairs is going to handle the whole entire situation. We had talked about earlier a couple weeks ago about the press and how some of them were going to be embedded with some of these units once they got into Iraq to ensure that they were able to report all these things to the public so they would get an idea of what was going on and all these things. And that was going to be the responsibility of that public affairs. That public affairs officer, man, what a job they're going to have. <laughs> Talk about being stressed out and the things that they're going to have to deal with. But that's what we're going to look at next week so we can decide and see exactly how they're going to handle that kind of situation. Again, I want to thank you guys for joining me this week. And those of you guys that have been joining us on our premiere podcast of our video streaming podcasting on our Facebook page, The Quarterdeck with Gunny Signs, I appreciate all the feedback. I appreciate you guys tuning in. Do not forget to share our link, The Quarterdeck with Gunny Signs, on Facebook. You can find us there and as well as you can listen to us on all of the podcasting streaming applications. All you simply have to do is just hit Google, type in the quarter deck with Gunny Signs, and you'll be able to find all the different links, all the different podcast uh, platforms that are out there. 
that you're going to be able to listen to the quarter deck here. So here's to you guys having a great outstanding week. Enjoy your Thursday until next week. This is Miguel, the Gunny Signs, sounding Liberty Call. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. Against 